what's exciting about it. And I think the reason we keep doing it is because it still feels very different and we're learning a lot every time. There's certain things that are easier the second time around, such as sort of looking through the work and beginning to be able to see, oh, that's that's very resist. That's the resist style and having a clearer sense of what it is that we're even trying to do. And then there are certain things that are more difficult. Like the first one we distributed at women's marches across the country. For the second one, there's not a mass gathering of people in the street. So we're distributing it by creating a grassroots network of independent bookstores and comic book shops across the country. But that it, I've sent about 700 emails to probably every independent bookstore I could possibly think of in America. So that's a little bit harder. Yeah, certainly the movement in, is in a very different place than it was in the lead up to the election. The first time it was very um, uh, specific uh, emotional um, trajectory where we went from shock <laughs> and absolute like stunned silence to a very spelled out desire on Naja and my part to make something. And we really, as she just mentioned, had little idea of what it was, except that it was going to be printed. And we were kind of like sifting through um, an outpouring of people out in the street and protesting and so on. And now people, I think, feel um beaten by the constant drumbeat of I think of like not just the reality of Trump but his manipulation of the narrative but what is more and more hopeful I think uh, in resist and part of the reason we also continue doing it is that our stated intention wasn't to criticize or do investigative reporting, or uh, but it was to assert another reality, and the assertion of that other reality is more and more needed as we go along. Like we cannot spend another six months reacting to the president's tweets. It's just there's not enough brain cells for it. Does this take you out of that narrative from the standpoint of being something in print versus the immediacy of online media? Yes. Yes. I mean, I'm surrounded by, because I live in New York and I work in media, I'm surrounded by people who every single day say, state, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to say. I don't know, like, what will, um, you know, get us to wake up from this nightmare but I feel like I'm doing something because I'm putting together uh, a publication and it has its own very vast set of contributors and supporters. And it's actually joyful and affirmative and angry. And um, it's, it's not just reacting, but it's, it's actually cumulatively putting together a world that can uh, inhabit um, that makes me feel more connected than I was even a year ago. Wash in images, just a constant flow of images on the internet, a constant flow of information and print forces that you to take a step back and to condense and reflect and distill it into something. And it is something that then is lasting and becomes a snapshot of our present moment in a way where I hope that 
someday when historians are looking back on this, they can say, oh, and there was also this. There was also people feeling this way. There was also this counter movement. In a sense, the fact that the contributors have to work on something weeks or months ahead of time, it's a bit of a challenge. Essentially, they have to create something a little bit more timeless, something that's still going to be relevant a few months later. That's true. Yeah, that's one of the, you know, um, important realization working at The New Yorker for so many years that one gets trapped if you're trying to react on a daily newspaper front or on um, on the news as they develop, but having to take a little bit of distance simply because um, you want to be able to read it the next day and the next week um, does give you uh, a more useful um, point of view on what's happening. So it's more of a reflection than just... Um, too, too much of the dialogue, I feel, um, is stuck in the responding to the comment on the comment on the, you know, third level of comments, and then you're lost, you know, you always end up saying the same thing over and over again, you don't feel like you're ever moving, um, or understanding, or I think with the um, the process of resist, where we put a call out, and a lot of people answer, and then we distill it down and we see themes and ideas that recur. Um, we get a good sense that of, um, of a snapshot of where a lot of people are at. And that's exciting because those people haven't stopped breathing and thinking, you know, since November 9th. Hopefully. Um, hopefully. Um, and, yeah, there might be some kind of protest fatigue, but there's so much to be said. So it's about the environment, or it's about uh, women's rights, or it's about um, gay rights, or it's about race issues. There's so many, or immigration, there are so many topics where it's absolutely imperative and necessary um, that diverse voices be heard. And I think the you know you on on one hand you have the Trump camp and he puts like you know ten or twelve white older white men in a room to decide health care, um, but the response has been too narrow. I think the response need to be as vast as possible and feel as inclusive as possible, and that's what we feel, Nadja and I, when we are, you know busy um, amassing all this information on resist is the vitality of all those people who don't have a voice in the media but who are grabbing a pen and you know doing a comic strip for the first time or a cartoon or whether they be a 13 year old girl or a grandmother in Vermont like this also people who are actually feeling motivated enough to add their voice to the culture, and that's very exciting. I imagine the first one was a lot more steeped in straight catharsis. You know, a lot of people were kind of exercising some of these demons from their system. But now that it's been a few months, now that the reality has really set in, and now that everything is 
about as bad as I think anyone could have imagined it would have been. Is there a sense that your mission has shifted, that the mission of this work has shifted from serving as sort of a therapy to actually helping people organize or motivate themselves or actually get out there to attempt to address some of these problems? I think one of the things that's exciting is that we don't know what we're making until we're making it because it's so dependent on this open call on the internet. It's not like we're saying you do a three-page strip about immigration and then we put that in. So our first issue was a lot of a lot of catharsis, a lot of the stages of grief, a lot of um, of women linking arm in arm and solidarity and sisterhood. We shall overcome sort of kumbaya expressions of, of, of some kind of hopefulness of the idea of a building of a resistance. And this issue, when the submissions started coming in, were very different in tone. They were a lot angrier. There was uh, women making fists. There was vagina dentata. There was um, there was just a lot more anger. And at first that surprised us. Um, but then we embraced it and made that the theme of the issue. And I think as much as we have a mission, it's to try and listen and to try and capture it. It's endlessly exciting to me how we stumbled into that first call was like to do a women's only. And we right away in uh, conversations, because we have the benefit of this being in a conversation with each other. And as much as we love each other, we come at it from different ways. So that already opens up. We realize that we couldn't make it as much as we wanted to favor women. We wanted to not be exclusive. That that was the enemy to um, to to create a group that finds its identity by who it rejects. So that the raison d'être of resist was to be inclusive and to encourage um, people that usually didn't feel compelled to uh, be cartoonists, to express themselves. And certainly the diversity of women's voices, the fact that it's people that would probably disagree with each other, if uh, some of them, as well as people of color, as well as gays, as well as young and old, like that is the feeling that's exciting, that that is not happening somewhere else. There's a, an extraordinary, together with uh, Trump's, is an amazing segmentation that has nothing to do with him, but that has to do with the way information flows. The internet is so vast, but it's also so narrow, like people only get news from the 120 friends that they have and they um, get their news channeled and their buying habits define them. I mean, they get, you know, pulled to be targeted by advertisers that they have no idea who lives next door to them geographically um, half the time because the culture is getting less and less universal. But we feel in with this a sense of multifaceted approaches. That's what we see, like the fact that stylistically there's, um, you know, very skilled and um, polished work by cartoonists that are at the top of their game next to people who have never drawn before, next to people that are somewhere in the middle. It's, it's a very generative 
process to put all those people together because they feel the excitement. They feel a connection with each other through the work. One of the key downsides of print, though, is particularly with a project like this where it's coming out irregularly and you've only got a finite amount of space. That's probably even more tricky to address all of those people within the confines of a given publication. Yeah, I think each time we're doing it, we think like, oh, let's just add in four more pages. Let's just add in eight more pages. And and, and this one did wind up being 96 pages. But um, but when, uh, when we want to add in four or eight more pages, we have to tell ourselves that we're not – we can distill it. That's, that's our, our job as editors, and we can – make it so that we're getting as much possible into these 96 pages and that it's not going to be significantly stronger if we just keep adding pages. Um, I, I, but I think that, that that work of trying to capture that full breadth of diversity and do it in a limited space is what makes it so exciting. We also work on our website, which allows us to show the full breadth and flow of everything that we're getting. The condensation of into a single voice of what is at its core, such a, a vast harmony of different voices, that's what's really exciting to try and do. And the juxtaposition, the, you know, that's one of the things that we love doing is after we amass all the material is this next to that, this next to that. It, it makes uh, um, some bigger than um, any one of the parts because they get energized by uh, who they put together with. It's, it's hard to overstate um, how um, exciting it is six months into the, after the election as a presidency that, the, that we don't feel the despair has actually like brought to life something that is gives me much more hope for the future than the complacency. In, in retrospect, we can see how complacent we were a year ago and how asleep we were to the reality. But, you know, I think now a day is finally, there is a sense of, um, for the urban elites of which, you know, of course we are a part of to uh, pay more attention to what it's like in the rest of the U.S. and to not just operate in such a closed circuit. Um, and that will be useful. And there is a sense for uh, not just generation and young people that this is their problem. <laughs> this is their future. I never felt patriotic. I was very skeptical of patriotism in part because that my political awakening took place during the George Bush years when an American flag meant being pro the Afghanistan or Iraq war. And we should mention that you are Skyping in from France right now. <laughs> As a proof of my total uh, cheese-eating surrender monkey traitordom. Yeah, but, but somehow Trump's presidency does has made me patriotic. It's made me realize that there are certain basic American values that I really believe in and care about and respect while fearing for them. But the values that involve our country being one of immigrants, one where there's a freedom of the press, those are things that I took for granted my whole life growing up and now really want to fight for. She got me a t-shirt that she wanted to me to wear for every interview that says, I am an immigrant. <laughs> After the publication of First Issue, you've actually heard some stories of people picking up pencils and, and trying to become cartoonists? 
Yes, and for the first issue as well. You know, when we when we put out the call, we could see we didn't do much outreach. It did itself. You know, I put a post on my Facebook, and so did Naja, and people were sending it to each other. I'm like, look, there is a destination for all this energy, and in a way, it was the same kind of outpouring as you saw in the streets with handmade posters and funny slogans. A lot of People wanted to say something to to get their voices heard, and I think that the newsprint nature of resist, the fact that it's given away for free, is an antidote to publications like the New Yorker or the New York Times that have another function where they they are the most thought through and uh, authoritative. Um, op-ed piece on this topic or that topic. Um, Resist doesn't pretend that it has the uh, all of the pundits in one place. It's quite the opposite. It's actually a genuinely democratic and popular response to what's happening. And the, um, the democratic nature of print, of like a free giveaway publication, the fact that anybody can participate. It's not like, you know, putting together a 90-minute film or uh, a video game. It's a medium that is accessible. We have so many contributors who are feeling motivated now to not just do something, but also do something that other people will read and share and hold in their hands. Again, that's Francois Moulet and Naja Spiegelman. Resist number two is out now. You can check it out at resistsubmission.com or at finer comic book stores everywhere. It's really, really big names in there. Uh, Ross Chess, Alison Bechdel, Linda Berry, got uh, Dan Klaus, Spiegelman. Highly recommend you checking out. They're doing some really, really neat stuff over there. Uh, thank you so much to the two of them for taking the time to do that. It was uh, a rare Skype interview, which is why we are putting this up as a uh, bonus episode. Uh, Nadia, of course, was, was in France during the conversation. Uh, also, some uh, I think there was some construction happening in the background. So hopefully hopefully that didn't uh, detract too much from your enjoyment of the show. Also worth noting, when the first issue of Resist came out, I did an interview. I was trying to get both of them involved. The timing, for various reasons, didn't really line up, and I ended up, uh, somewhat ironically, only speaking to uh, to Gabe Fowler of Desert Island. Uh, talk to a dude. Talk to the uh, the one dude involved in the founding of the magazine for a Playboy interview that I did for that episode. So I'm glad I was able to uh, make up for that really enjoyed that conversation thanks so much to them thanks to you guys as always for listening to the program if you uh, do like the show please consider rating us on itunes or wherever it is that you get your podcasts uh, like us on facebook follow us on tumblr that's rwildcast.tumblr.com uh, if you got any feedback it's rwildcast at gmail.com and uh, i think that's about all i got so uh, stick around because we'll be back in a couple days with another episode of rwild 